0: here at this local church. I am so thankful for that and so thankful for your pastor here. for I know that there's guests here and obviously there's members of Riverbend, River but I am just so thankful for what the Lord is doing here and Matthew grateful to God for you. For your role here, for the way that the Lord is using you. I have to tell those of you who are part of Riverbend, it sure was a special joy even on Thursday to meet with some of the pastors from all over New Zealand, some from Australia, and uh, I was just grateful to see how this local church can play uh, impact in the life of the country and we praise the Lord for that. And I'm so thankful for this church and I I come back and I sense its health and I don't know if that's a word, feel its health and feel its joy and feel its unity. So I'm super, super grateful, Matthew, praise the Lord for what the Spirit of God is doing here in this place is indeed a wonderful, wonderful privilege. So it's been great to be back and... uh, uh, I was in touch, some of you remember Nigel Shaler, and uh, Nigel is a dear friend, he's serving the Lord in Southern California now with a good friend of mine, Chris Mueller, who was here last year, and uh, I sent him some pictures, and I always think it's funny because I met Phil, uh, Phil and Nigel in 1990, 29 years ago today, you know, this weekend. And so it's played just a special part. So grateful to God for the privilege to be here, open his word with you. I want to take you this morning to to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and I want to bring you to part of the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to share some things that the Holy Spirit does that the Holy Spirit does today, and then I'm going to share some things with you that make a practical uh, difference for you in relationship to the Holy Spirit. You know, I bore down pretty hard last night that the Holy Spirit speaks through His Word, certainly believe that, grateful to God for that, but the Holy Spirit does so many things in our life, so many things in our salvation that are amazing. I wrote down a few. Number one, He adopts you. Romans 8, 15. In other words, He's the one who puts you into the family. God the Father chooses, but the Holy Spirit adopts you. He baptizes you. Not by immersion, but He baptizes you. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Into the body of Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bears witness. Not only of Christ, but He bears witness in your hearts. He calls, in Acts chapter 13, men into the ministry. In fact, I sat down with a young man yesterday who was wondering about his own call. And I realized as I get older, I could guide him a little bit, shepherd him a little bit, but ultimately, that's the Holy Spirit's call in a man's life, Acts 13. Certainly, we're going to look today that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. He's doing so today. He empowers you in Acts 1.8. You shall be His witnesses. And you know that one. He's empowering you today to make a difference. In Luke 4, He fills you with power. Both in Luke, in the temptation of Christ, Acts two four. Ephesians 5.18, he's filling you with the Spirit. He guarantees your salvation according to Ephesians 1.14. One of the reasons our assurance, and not even necessarily our assurance there, our eternal security in Ephesians 1.4 is because of the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment of your salvation. He's the guarantee of it. He guards you in 2 Timothy 1.14. He helps you, John 14. He's your comforter. He's your counselor. He's helping even now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, even today, he's illuminating truth to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he indwells in you. Romans 8, 9, and 11. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Meaning that when you become a Christian, he takes up permanent presence in you, in other words, the Spirit of the Living God is dwelling inside of you, and as I mentioned, that's why you can grieve Him. That's why you can quench the Holy Spirit because He lives inside you. He's a person, and when you sin, I often tell people, I don't, I don't have the assurance of my salvation always uh, because of the hard truths. I believe. I mean, obviously, that that's true. But I know one of the reasons I'm a believer is when I sin, I have no joy in it. And he continues to convict me and be heavy on my heart. Not for my salvation, but for my sanctification. He intercedes for you in Romans 8 and so much more. He produces spiritual fruit in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. He puts character in you, according to Galatians 5. Of course, He regenerates you. In John chapter 3, He breathes spiritual life into you. He causes you to be born again. And on it goes. He reveals truth. He sanctifies. He seals you. He selects elders who have been set apart by the Holy Spirit. And so much more. And so I want to just draw you, though... To one of the works of the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 16, would you follow along as I read the text, and I'm reading from the ESV, you're probably holding um, the inspired version, the NASV, no, and the ESV is good, but um, if the words look a little different, I'm reading from the ESV, nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. judged. That's our text this morning. He is on his way, as I've mentioned, to the cross. He's just hours away from Gethsemane prayer, his high priestly prayer, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. And he tells these troubled disciples an amazing verse. Can you imagine them hearing that in verse 7? That I'm telling you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. And and I really believe, I think as I've mentioned there, it's to your advantage because no longer would Jesus' ministry only be localized. Jesus will be ascending into glory and as He departs He will dispatch the person of the Holy Spirit to them. In fact, it's real clear in verse 7 where it says, the helper will not come to you, but if I go I will send Him to you. And we talked about that um, was that yesterday morning that he had to depart, he had to be glorified, glorified was his death, resurrection, and ascension into glory and then forty days later at Pentecost, the spirit of God was poured out. What made that new is that 's what happens today is that people when they come to christ have been, 1 Corinthians 12, baptized into the Spirit. The Spirit of God permanently resides in you. So he says, it's to your advantage that I go away because he, will, he was once with you, but he will now be in you, is the thought. And so he says, I'm going away, and he will take up permanent presence within you. And when he comes, he's going to live within you. I'm thinking of those statements in 1 Corinthians three sixteen. You are God's temple... And God's Spirit dwells in you. In other words, He changes your heart in regeneration. He takes up residence in you. It says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you? So this is the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. He moves and causes us to be Holy, and so Jesus says, It's better that I go away because I'm just dis- dispatching the person and work of the Holy Spirit to live within you and dwell within you. Now, I want to take you to a further work of the Holy Spirit. I, I, we mentioned a couple things that He's identified by name, He's identified by the sender, Jesus and the Father, He's identified by function, He bears witness about me in 1526. But if you're taking notes, he's identified, it's the Holy Spirit, by his convicting work in the world. That's our text this morning. He's identified by his convicting work in the world. And that's the text of verses 8 through 11. Now whenever you're studying a passage, as an expositor, you're always looking for the lead verb. And it's clear here that there's a main verb and a lead verb. And it's found in verse 8. And I want you to glance down at it. And when, again, He's not come. We're still 40 days away from Pentecost. But when He comes, He will, and here's the lead verb, convict the world. That's the thought. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. Certainly not the only thing He does, but one of the aspects of what He does is He, there's the verb, convicts the world. Then when you're looking down in your Bible at 9 through 11, if you will, he expands and he does Jesus explain what the new verb, what that verb does. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, verse 8, righteousness, verse 8, judgment, verse 8, and then what he's going to do in 9 through 11 is expand What that is. Now the question would be is, how does the Holy Spirit do that? What is the role of the Holy Spirit today? Certainly we looked at some history. What is he doing in this world in the 21st century? Well, let me just demonstrate that in the text through three ways that the Holy Spirit is bringing that conviction. He's doing that concerning sin. He's doing that secondly concerning righteousness. Righteousness. He's doing that thirdly concerning judgment. This is what the Spirit of God does today. And I'm going to delay some things that I normally would put out front, so you need to hang with me so that I could bring a very purposeful application to you in what your role is today. Certainly the lead thought is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Well, first, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. Look at verse 8, excuse me, it says there uh, in 8, convict the world concerning sin, and now in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. It is the Spirit's convicting work that reveals to the world their sin. At a very basis, foundational basis of this text, the Holy Spirit's role even this day and certainly in that day, is to expose, that's what part of the word for convict means, expose the world's sin. Sometimes some of the scholars would translate it to convince the world of sin. But it's more than that. That that term for convict here is a legal term. In fact, it's a little more sharper than expose, I believe. It would be like a prosecuting attorney. In other words, the word convict is used in a courtroom and as, an, as a prosecutor, if you will, the Holy Spirit drives home personal conviction in an individual's heart and mind to bring them to the need of the Savior. So I would say it this way, that the aim of the Holy Spirit's work is to bring the unbeliever to see his or her perilous condition in which they, sta- they stand. Now listen, the Holy Spirit convicts sinners. You say, well, Scott, what, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, just to say that it's the role of the Holy Spirit to produce in the life of an unbeliever an overwhelming sense of sin. Sin, of course, if we just took that word is what misses the mark of God's holiness, God's standard, God's perfection. And what sin misses is the ideal of being perfect. He's created the law. He is the lawgiver. Sin misses God's standards. Now, we both know, we all know that Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our trespasses and what? Sins. We are, in that sense, overwhelmed of our sin, we are guilty of our sin the bible tells us that throughout the scripture that man is blinded by his sin he is alienated by his sin he is one scripture says in ephesians hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds and so as jesus departs they're thinking what's going to happen He says, I'm going to dispatch the Holy Spirit to you. And one of the chief roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin and to save sinners. In other words, it's the weight of sin. It's the enormity of sin. It's the pressure of sin. And I shared very openly yesterday to the the, the young people, to the student session that that's what he did in my life. Did he not do that in your life as we come to communion? I mean, the truth is, if you're a believer in here, you begin to feel the weight of sin. You begin to feel the guilt of sin. You begin to feel the pressure of sin. And what used to never bother you when you lived in the world, all of a sudden, something's happened. You may not even be redeemed at this point, but you're, you're walking through life and all of a sudden the burden and the weight and the pressure and the guilt of your sin becomes exposed. What is that? Well, I suggest out of the text here, that's the work of the Spirit of God in your life, right? In other words, you're moving along in a worldly path. You're moving along in the flesh, And all of a sudden, God Almighty begins to arrest you through the work of the Spirit and begins to put pressure on you. The truth is, not any of us this morning would ever be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, first, the Holy Spirit brings an awareness of sin, a conviction of sin. He exposes our sin, and so he's giving this to the disciples to encourage them. As I go, I'm going to dispatch the Holy Spirit to you. And one of his chief ends is, he'll not only bear witness of me, he'll not only glorify Christ, but he's going to be in the world convicting of sin. Secondly, though, note this, it's not just conviction of sin. It says, and righteousness in verse 8. And then it says in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Now, there might be a question here. Is this true righteousness, the righteousness that only Christ can bring, is that that what the Holy Spirit's doing, or is it self-righteousness? Well, I think at least at the outset, the Holy Spirit is bringing the world to conviction, both of its sin and then here of its self-righteousness. In other words, you're moving along in your life going about your business, going about your sin, not wanting accountability to anybody, not caring what God says, not caring what the Bible says. And in this sense, you might even be moving about in your self-righteousness. You think about the Jewish nation, all your righteous deeds, it says in Isaiah 64, are like a filthy garment. Here was the nation thinking they were so Righteous In their own, obviously, self-righteousness. In fact, think of the leaders, think of the Pharisees, even though they studied meticulously the law of Moses, they're attempting to murder Jesus in John chapter 7. Amazing! Self-righteousness. They're moving about in their own righteousness. Studying the law of Moses, but plotting murder all at the same time. You get to the other portions of the book of John, and the Sabbath is religiously kept, all while Jesus is being condemned for healing a paralytic of 38 years on the Sabbath. I mean, if there was any self-righteous nation, it was the Jewish people. But all of this, all of this human righteousness is inadequate. It is not sufficient. It is unacceptable to God. Do you remember, beloved, in the book of Romans when Paul said of the Jewish people in chapter 10, they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, and so they sought to establish what? Their own. They didn't get the righteousness that comes from God through faith. They thought to establish their own. And it says in Romans 10, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they were so self-righteous... They didn't submit to God's righteousness. I think you remember Paul before his conversion in Philippians 3. Remember when he said, as to zeal, a persecutor, he said of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he said, I was found blameless. But then you remember whatever gain he said I had, he said, I counted all for the loss of the sake of Christ. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. He said, I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you say, pull it back together. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's convicting the world Of their sin. He's convicting the world of its self-righteousness. In other words, your sins fall short of the glory of God. Sin and self-righteousness damns you forever. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. The righteousness that truly saves you only belongs to Jesus Christ. It is why we call it an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of yourself. And that is... The gospel, beloved. Now what the Holy Spirit's going to do though here is he's going to convict you of that self-righteousness. In fact, as we go to communion just a little bit later this morning, are you not thankful that he did that for you? I mean, I could just tell you in my life, um, I was self-righteous as a teenager. You say, well, uh, Scott, were you a sinner? Oh yeah, I knew I was a sinner and I was running from him. But all at the same time, I knew I didn't want to submit to God. I thought I was a good guy. I thought I helped people at my junior high. I thought I didn't bully people. In fact, if you looked at me, I was at Grace Community Church. I was sitting under the the word of God. But I never knew that I was a sinner. And I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit who brought that and quickened that in my life, I would say, in a heartbeat. And he did that. I shared yesterday through James 2.10. I was out shooting baskets. It doesn't sound very spiritual. I wish I could tell you I was praying or looking at Hebrew verbs or Greek verbs. No, I'm 14. I didn't know anything. But all of a sudden I was out in my backyard and this one scripture came into my heart. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he has become what? Guilty of all. And I told the students, it was like a divine arrow that came out of heaven. And for the first time in my life at 14, I realized that not only was, a, was I a sinner, but I also realized my self-righteousness was going to judge me because I did not keep the law. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point, he's become guilty of all. And I, it almost took my breath away. Now, I can look back and tell you I'm just shooting baskets there. I was working on my three-point shot. I think maybe the Golden State Warriors might have used me even in this conference. Um, And I'm just working. And you say, what is that, Scott? That's the Holy Spirit in my life. I could look back and say, and then this scripture came into my heart. I could look back and say it was like a divine arrow that came out of heaven. But I'm telling you, it was in that moment I was cut to the quick I dropped to my knees, and I confessed my need. How does that work? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, God, what do you mean? What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicted me of my sin. He convicted me of my self-righteousness. At the same time He did that, He showed me the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is, as, as we come into communion later, the nature of what The Christian faith is all about. It's called the doctrine of justification. And when God justifies you, when God declares you, like kind of a legal courtroom, the gavel goes down, you are righteous. Justification always involves two things. Justification, number one, involves the removal of sin, it must be taken away. You must have your sins. Removed And Christ did that by his death on the cross. But secondly, justification involves something else. You have to have something taken away. You have to have something added. And what is added is what? Is righteousness. Not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when one is justified, your sin is removed... And then righteousness is added. He takes your sin that you committed, that damns you forever. He removes that from you, places it on the cross of Christ who died in your place. But you you wouldn't only there's something else that you would need. You'd need righteousness to stand in the presence of God. And he gives you the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. And it comes through the how do you get that righteousness? There's an agency. What's the agency? faith. Now, not everybody believes that. I mean, we think it's all by faith. You say, what do you mean by faith? You have to look away from yourself. You have to look up to Christ. You have to look away from your own righteousness, your own merit, your own deeds. You have to look to the cross of Christ. And, and you say, well, yes, that's the gospel. That is the gospel, unless you're Roman Catholic, right? And if you're Roman Catholic here, I'm not trying to be um, offensive. I'm actually glad you're here, I'm not going to say something rude. I'm just going to say what the Roman Catholics believe. Now, we're talking about righteousness. How do you get that righteousness? The Spirit of God convicts you of your self-righteousness. When he does that, you have to cry out to Christ to not only forgive your sin, remove it. You have to have the righteousness of Christ, active obedience placed into your life so that when God Almighty looks down on you, he sees you through the finished work of Christ. But of course, a Roman Catholic doesn't believe that. How is a Roman Catholic justified? I, I just just share with you honestly. It's just I'm telling you what they teach. We would say it's by faith. We how are they justified? Do you know? I don't know if you and I can't quite hear. I think I heard works and uh, yeah, but that's not really that's secondary. The secondary work. You know how they're justified? Like all I know is when I was fourteen, I got down on my knees. I, I just—it was like a harpoon. God, I'm a sinner. I didn't—I didn't, i didn't know quite. I'm fourteen. I didn't know all the theology, but, but I knew this: God, I'm a sinner. You're a righteous Savior. Take my sins. I believe. I confess you as Lord. I confess. Maybe I knew enough of Romans 10 that you, you were you died and you were raised on the third day. And with the confession of my mouth, Lord, redeem me. And I got up and and I was saved. I could say I was saved, or I could say I was justified at that moment in my life at 14. Jesus Christ in the glory of heaven pounded the gavel and declared me righteous. But a Roman Catholic, I just this is a little bit of a tangent. They believe that the means of justification is not faith. They believe that the means of justification is baptism. So maybe you knew that. So if you think that they're taking their children to a nice little ceremony where they get sprinkled, you're wrong. They're taking their baby to be justified. Because when that priest baptizes that child by sprinkling that baby with a few drops on his water, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that that baby is saved. I just, I want to be clear. This is the difference between being a believer and being a Catholic. They believe in what we call baptismal regeneration. You say, well, Scott, how do you know that? It's in their doctrines. So you can understand Mama doesn't want to just perform the ceremony. Mama wants to get her child to the priest to save that baby. So that kicks justification. Then the second work comes in and that's called works. But I'm making a distinction what the Holy Spirit does in our life. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of righteousness. And the way you come into a right relationship with God is through faith. So maybe I should ask for those of you here have you been redeemed? The agency, the Scripture says, is it's through faith, through faith, through faith. And let me bring it back here. The Holy Spirit's role is the Holy Spirit crushes self-exalting, self-righteousness and exposes the darkness of your hearts. And if you're saved, you understand what I mean. And for me, that all came at once. I, all of a sudden... I was convicted of just being a a sinner, just committing one sin. And then all of a sudden, I knew I wasn't worthy to get into heaven. So I dropped on my knees. I cry out to Him. What's happening? The Holy Spirit is doing that. This is what the text is saying. Listen, I'm going to go, but I want you to know Jesus says it's to your advantage if I go. Because if I don't go, He's not going to come. But when He comes, He's going to convict you of your sin. He's going to convict you of Your righteousness. And that he's going to do, look at the text there in verse 10. He says, because he goes to the Father and you will see me no longer. And I think here is a great theological truth. His return to heaven is the proof of his own righteousness that God accepts. So he convicts the world of self-righteousness and true righteousness revealed in Christ. Thirdly, though, look what else the Holy Spirit does. It says there in verse 11, it's also mentioned in 8 concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged so he not only brings conviction to sin conviction of righteousness and I think it's a self-righteousness first then the true righteousness and now he brings a conviction of judgment and obviously this judgment is against Satan Satan beloved was judged and condemned on the cross Satan's judgment was executed, if you will, on the cross. It was on the cross that he paid for your sin. It was on the cross that he defeated death. He died in your place. He died as your substitute. And because he died in your place and rose again, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name and every knee that will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan himself was judged. And so I think there's a... There's a, there's a direct statement here that if Christ defeated the greatest enemy, Satan himself, then what makes you think you can escape the coming future judgment when you stand before God? In other words, the Holy Spirit's war, role is going to bring judgment. He's going to bring judgment to your heart. Did you not feel that way? I mean, did you? I mean, I mean this is the gospel. He convicts you of sin, your sin, either big sins or one sin. It doesn't take plural sins. It just takes a sin, just Mrs. Mark, okay? And then the Bible says you were conceived in sin. So you're already, you're you're born a sinner, then you choose to be a sinner, okay? But he convicts you of your sin. He convicts you of your self-righteousness, the need for true righteousness. And then all at the same time, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of judgment. Judgment, judgment to come. Judgment that already took place on the person of Satan himself. And he begins to bear down on you that one day you'll stand before God. It says in Hebrews, it's appointed for man to die once, then what? Comes judgment. So do you not know that in your own life? The Holy Spirit's agents and his role here is to convict of sin, self-righteousness, and judgment. And it's my prayer, if you don't know Christ this morning, that you would flee to Christ. He is your only hope, okay? In fact, let me ask you a question. What is the greatest sin today? There's a lot of sin today. I saw yesterday there was another killing in America. A man walked into a city building in Virginia with a 45 automatic and just unloaded magazine after magazine, killed 12 people. Horrendous. I mean, what is the we sin today, certainly that's a brutal, vicious attack. It's, it's, it's also uh, wickedly evil. He had some form of uh, silencer on his 45 so that even people who were in the next building weren't quite aware of what he was doing because as the gun went off, his silencer, you couldn't even hear it. The only reason that people heard gunfire is when the law enforcement got there. So this guy's going systematically from floor to floor, killing 12 of his own Co-workers, obviously, a horrendous sin. Murder is horrible. In the United States, there's abortion. At least, last time I checked, every three seconds that I speak, a baby is murdered. Certainly, adultery is bad. But I want to just say, at least here, that the greatest sin spoken here is the sin of unbelief. Look back in the text at verse. um, Where is that? Um, Verse nine. Here's the greatest sin, concern and sin, because they do not believe in, what, me. I believe that's the greatest sin in the world, not believing in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate sin. In other words, when somebody doesn't place their faith in Christ, they have chosen another God. And that other God, in most cases, is themselves. In other words, you are at the center of all things and you refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what the Holy Spirit's going to do is He's going to bring that conviction. He has to bring that conviction because people don't believe in Christ. They reject Him. They reject His Scriptures and they are judged. In fact, Jesus said in Romans 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe in Me, and that I am, you will die in your sins. Listen, all somebody has to do is not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will send them straight to hell. And so the Holy Spirit's got to save, does he not? I, I, I want to help you here in this sense. It's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. Even as I preach, I could preach, but only the, only, only the Holy Spirit can open the hearts. But here's the question I want to ask you. I just said that as background, okay? What does the Holy Spirit use to accomplish the conviction of sin, the conviction of self-righteousness, and the conviction of judgment? Now, I'm, 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 I'm taking you just a step further here. You say, ah, like if I looked at my life, I said... I realized, like being like the light went on. I'm a sinner. I kept the whole law, but at one point I'm guilty of the whole thing. I felt that weight. I knew it in an instant. From the Holy Spirit, I was self-righteous. At the same time, for about two years of my life, I'm running from the judgment of God. I'm, as a kid, I was. I, I felt like he had me in the crosshairs of his scope, okay? And everywhere I went, I was guilty. I mean, I was running. But, I, you know, like they say sometimes, the hound of heaven is after you. And, and then all of a sudden, I thought, I'm doomed. I'm toast. I'm on my way to hell. And I, I dropped, okay, that's the Holy Spirit. But what does, what means does the Holy Spirit use? Look back in your text. The key is in verse 8. I want to draw you back to that verb. It says, when he comes, underline this, and I think you have it in the NASB, he will convict. That's the key here to understanding this passage. It's that lead verb. Now, that lead verb, follow with me here, is a Greek verb, elenko. And, And the word means the word convict, to show someone their sin and summon them to repentance. To convict means, I'll say it again, to show someone their sin and summon summon them to repentance. Now the Holy Spirit is doing that. He's showing the sin and He's calling to repentance. In fact, that word there, that verb convict, is often understood in a judicial sense of bringing down a negative verdict regardless of whether or not the the convicted party admits any guilt. But the question I'm asking you is, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Now, that verb for convict in the New Testament is used 18 times. And nearly... Every time it is used, hear me on this, it is the word of God that is convicting someone of sin and calling them to repentance, okay? In other words, I, I want to get to the point of your life, of what you're doing in evangelism, okay? We know in evangelism, apart from the spirit of God, nothing can happen, so you're praying like crazy, But I'm telling you that one of the means of the Word of God to bring that conviction is the Word of God itself. Let me show you, just so I'm not saying that. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, okay? I'm anxious to show you this. I found it very fascinating as I track this down. But in 1 Timothy, is that what I said? 1 Timothy, look over there and look over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Of course, it's in a passage of elders. It's giving... Paul to Timothy, instructions for a church. And I I want to draw you to verse 17. 517, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And the ones who are worthy of double honor, in other words, uh, all elders rule, but there's an adjective there, some elders rule well. There's a beauty in what they do. He says, let them be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor is not only honor and attitude, it's honor and remuneration. It says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So he's talking about the elders' role, preaching and teaching. Verse 18, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labor deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Watch this. As for those who persist in sin. There's our word sin. Here's the word. Rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may uh, the rest may stand in fear. That word there, rebuke, is the word for convict. Now you would think in the context as he's laying out verse 17, preaching and teaching as he's laying out the scriptures in verse 18, that if someone is, is persisting in sin, verse 20, you rebuke them, elenco, in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand fearful. In fact, look at 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, Paul says, to keep these rules without prejudicing or without prejudging, and, and then he says, "doing nothing from partiality." And I was like, it's the word of God in that context that is reproving someone of their sin. You could actually say there in 5:20, those who persist in sin, convict them in the presence of all. And in the context, he's using the word of God. Ta- let me take you over just to the right a little bit. Second Timothy. I think you understand this text. Paul is giving his charge to Timothy in 4.1, 2 Timothy 4.1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And then he says in 4.2, preach the what? Word, and you know this, be ready in season and out of season, and what's that first word? Reprove, rebuke. And the word for convict, elenko is the word for reprove. So you can't move away from the command of the pastor to preach the word. And while he's preaching that word, he is ever convicting and reproving with that word. And so here I'm just making the the, the connection here between the Holy Spirit's work. But the means of that often is the word of God. Look to the right again, just in the book of Titus. In the book of Titus. There, he's speaking to the elders, he must hold firm, verse 9, 1-9, to the trustworthy word. In other words, I always like this. It doesn't mean that the elder, uh, obviously, he, he needs to know doctrine, but I don't take it as that. The elder is clinging to the trustworthy word personally. That's an elder, not because he could spit out and regurgitate some kind of manual. He himself is holding firm to the trustworthy word is taught. Look at the purpose clause in verse 9. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to what? Rebuke. That's the word for convict. He's holding to the word. He's holding to sound doctrine. And he's holding to sound doctrine in order to rebuke, in order to convict, in order to bring the word of God to bear on that sin. So I think what's fascinating here, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But when you expand the categories in the New Testament, the Spirit of God uses the word of God to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So there it is, rebuke, it says there in verse 9, those who contradict, if you will, glance over to chapter 2 of Titus in verse 15. Of course, back to Titus two one. As for you, Paul told Titus, teach, didaskolos, what accords with what? Sound doctrine. That's the Greek word hygieno. Obviously, we get our English word hygiene from. In other words, Paul to Titus, Paul to you young men. You need to teach, not come up with another fad and another gimmick and a, another way to reach people. As for you, Titus, the false teachers, look back in 16, profess one sixteen to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, but as for you. That, that would be the implication. Teach, Titus. In fact, so many pastors seem to be doing so many things that sometimes they uh, walk out of their greatest responsibility, and that's to help equip the saints. And that's my main role where I am. I spend at least 20 hours a week in the Word of God, hopefully as a waiter to bring to Grace Church of the Valley the Word. But he says here, teach. And I want you to teach what's in accord with healthy doctrine. Is there bad doctrine? Oh, there's horrible doctrine. In, in fact, go back to one eleven of Titus. There are men who mu- Titus one eleven who must be silenced because they're upsetting what whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. It's interesting, without mentioning names, guys in my country, in our camp. Uh, I, I, when I see that, it just cuts me. They're teaching for shameful gain. With the, some of these, one particular guy has put his church $42 million in debt. And and now they've got lawyers examining his personal expense count. I mean, it's just what happens in the States. And there's a number of guys that even would subscribe to the doctrine probably, but, but you're, you're like, do you really need a 12,000 square foot house? I mean, it's amazing what some of these guys, but come back to 2.1. He says, as for you, teach what accords not with unhealthy doctrine, but sound doctrine. And in this case, sound doctrine is what follows in chapter 2. But I draw your eyes to 2.15 on our point. Declare these things. Now, what are these things? The things that Paul just said. It's the word of God. It's apostolic doctrine that I talked last night. Declare these things. Watch the phrasing. Exhort and what? Rebuke. There's the word. Underline rebuke. That's the same Greek word for convict. elenko Declare these things. Exhort and convict with all authority. I'm making the connection here that the Holy Spirit is going to take up the word of God and use it in people's life to bring that conviction. He certainly uses human instruments to do that here as such. Listen. In nearly every passage, that verb convict, it is the word of God spoken, I could say it that way, from you, or preached, that the Holy Spirit uses to bring this about. Let me give you a couple of illustrations to see it, okay? Can I give you a couple biblical pictures? Look over to the book of Jude. Let me show you this in the book of Jude. No chapters, you know, just one chapter or so, or we'd say just Jude, 25 verses. But in the book of Jude, there's an example here of Enoch, and I want you to see it. And I want you to see what Enoch was doing. And look at 14. It was also about these, and he's talking about the false teachers. Go back to 13, wild ways of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Listen, I um, let me just stop there just for a second. I just have such a, a watchdog mentality even at my own church. I don't, I, I the older I get the, the more I realize how false doctrine ruins families. And so I, it's not like a prideful thing But I'm watching people. I'm looking over people. We're making them go through membership class because I know somebody would just like to infiltrate our church. But he says of these false teachers, they're like waves of sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Look at verse 14 though. It was also about these, watch this, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and what did he do? He prophesied I don't need to go into a whole discussion there, but he is declaring, he is preaching, he is prophesying the word of God, saying, look what he's saying in verse 14, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of the holy ones, that sounds like judgment, to, verse 15, to execute judgment on all, and watch this word, and to convict all the what? The ungodly. There's our word convict. Now you can say, why is it not reprove? At least in the ESV, it's convict there. The other times it's reprove or rebuke. But he's preaching, he's prophesying, he's saying judgment is coming, and he's in his preaching, he's convicting all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed. My point is is that the Holy Spirit is going to convict and He's going to use to do that the means of the Word of God. Let me give you a second illustration. It's a biblical illustration. Go over to the Gospel of Luke. And by the way, um, I'm going to bring it back to you, so just hang on. But in Luke chapter 3, there's another illustration there of the conviction brought by the Word of God. It's impossible to miss. Luke chapter 3. It is the preaching of John the Baptist. Have you ever been to Israel? I've seen the desert where he preached. And I'm just telling you, it is in the middle of nowhere. So everybody wants to be by a main city. I understand that. I mean, but we were able to buy a piece of property that's right off the freeway. And there we are. And praise God for that. I, I get that. But when I think of John preaching, he didn't want to go into the cities. He went out into the wilderness and he's filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. And I want, I want you to show this. Look at the judgment that he preached. And he, he even, in fact, he said, John answered them all saying, and I'm in 316. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. Speaking of Christ, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, X 2. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Judgment, to clear the uh, threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, he's preaching judgment. Verse 18, this is key. So with many other exhortations he preached, what? Good news to the people. Now, um, that's so funny. I have to be careful. I don't even know where I was in my notes, but we're okay, right? Uh, I don't know too many people who preach at evangelistic settings, Jeremy. I mean, am I right? I mean, I sat down, and I want to be careful because sometimes I hate being taped. Um, I'll sit down with young youth pastors, and they very rarely preach the word of God. They very rarely preach the word of God. And I think, well, what are you trying to do? The Word of God is the means that the Holy Spirit's going to use, right, to bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I'm just kind of surprised. Well, Scott, we're just building a relationship. Okay, I understand that. We had a lunch at our facility last week. 85 young people came, just walked over from the high school. Great, I want to build relationships. At some point, you better be a broker of truth, though, right? Right? At some point, you've got to be able to disciple. At some point, you've got to preach. And, and this is what John did. Look, look at verse 18 again. With many other exhortation, he preached the good news. In fact, I don't know if I shared here. It might have been at a... I, I, you start getting mixed up. I just had a guy tell me at a prominent uh, uh, Christian camp in the United States. He said, I, I've gotten a phone call. What would you do? So it's the phone call. He said, I got a big phone call from a big denominational leader who sends many kids to this Christian camp. And this particular person is running that camp. And the denominational guy said, listen, I only want my kids to come if you don't talk about the doctrine of hell. That's interesting. Now, he says, I don't want you to accentuate sin I want you to tell the students what Jesus can do for them. Pretty scary, huh? Pretty scary, because that's not even the gospel at that point. And if the camp is all about fun, games, energy, but John, look at that. Many other exhortations. He's caruso, preaching the good news to the people, but here's what I really wanted to say to you that. Look at the illustration in the next verse. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been, what does it say? I have reproved by him. Give me a preacher like John the Baptist. He's preaching the good news. As an example, Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved. That's the word convicted. That's lenko there who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. Man, that's a dude with moxie, huh? I think we got, Matthew, in some sense, a bunch of wimpy pastors today trying to please everyone while people in your church suffer under false teaching. And here's Herod. All I know, he's out in the wilderness, and he gets to Herod, and he reproves him. But I'm thinking he reproves them in the context, verse 18, of preaching the good news to the people. Now, now come back to John just for a second and, and stay with me. You've been real patient, okay? Come back because I'm really not done yet, okay? The, the reason I really believe this is tied to the meeting is, let me share you why it is tied to this context in in John 16 about the conviction being the Word of God is the context. And the reason I say the context is glance down again at 16:12, And I read this last night. I have many other things to say to you, but you cannot bear witness now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the, what? Truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but every he hears He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. He will... Also, it says, for as he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all that the Father has is mine, therefore all I, I said, that they will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's depositing the word of God. And I really believe in the context here, it's the word of God. In fact, if you go back up to chapter 15, verse 26, I even think it's a bookend. When the helper, 1526 comes, I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, truth in the scripture, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Okay? And so number one is context. And in fact, second reason, and I'm just going to be brief here, look over the book of Acts. Is because of the preached message in the gospel. Look over in Acts chapter 2. This is just a great section. I want to show you here what he was doing. And I think you realize as he was preaching in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit came in 2.22, men of Israel, hear these, what, words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in the midst of, as you yourself know, that Jesus delivered, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It says, you crucified. In other words, he goes right after. He just says, you crucified. You killed him. In other words, he's bringing the guilt there. He's bringing the judgment. You killed him by the hands of these lawless men. Go down to 2.33. He says, therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God, having you received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out that you yourselves are seeing and even hearing. And after he preached, look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. What is Peter preaching? He's preaching the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this opening gospel message, they were cut to the heart. You say, well, Scott, if you just, if you just preach like this, you're just going to empty New Zealand. Really? Really? At the end of his sermon, how many people got saved? 3,000 people were saved. I make the, the, the connection here that the reason our churches are so weak is there's so few people truly regenerated in it because they're not hearing the Word of God. Now, hang with me. I got a word to you, okay? Not a prophetic word, but a word, okay? I want to drive this home. What's amazing in this, and I've hit apostolic doctrine and preaching, but I think the point's greater. I think the point by implication secondary is that the Holy Spirit uses you. Because if you glance back up, go back to John, just one second. Go back. He's going to use you. You say, why do you say he's going to use you? Because I think he's going to give it to the apostles. But then you've got the statements like this in 1526 at the end. He will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. And then in 1527, and you also... 1527, will bear witness. And again, primarily to the apostles because you have been with me from the beginning. But certainly when you come into Acts, when it says, and you shall be my witnesses. Uh, but listen, you, you might say, well, Scott, wh- wh- what's my role? Well, pray as you talk to people because only the Holy Spirit does that. But in the sovereignty of God, He uses you in the process to speak the word of God to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Mom, he wants to use you. You say, well, pastor, I wouldn't know where to start. Just at some point, start with the word of God. Maybe just grab somebody, get some coffee, or as you would say, some tea, okay? And and just go through the scripture with them. If you're a junior high, or I don't know if you call it junior high or middle school, you've got students sitting in front of you on the right, on the left, and behind. He's going to use the word of God. In other words, the word of God is so powerful, all you have to do is open it and let it speak, and it's going to be doing his work. Dads, you say, how do I do this? Start opening the word with some people. Even if you get a moment at work, just say, let me just show you this scripture. Let me just show you this. Let me me show you what the New Testament says. And and I think the key here, and and you don't want to miss this. I'm going to make this connection, or you'll miss the whole point. Where does the Holy Spirit reside? He resides in you. So he tells these apostles, I'm leaving, but I'm coming to live not just with you, but be in you. The Holy Spirit resides in you to bear witness. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to use you in the context of your evangelism, empower you to be His witness through the teaching of the Word of God. God wants to use you, empowered by the Spirit, to show the world the Word of God. Amen? Listen, this is for evangelism. So he's going to do that. The Spirit's going to convict sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he's going to use the Word of God. So I look back on my life. Uh, I'm laughing. I'm dribbling the basketball, and into my mind pops what the Scripture. What is it? He right there. He just stopped me. So how did I know the Scripture? Because I heard it in church. Why did it come to my mind? The Holy Spirit. In fact, I believe he saved me right on the spot when the, I felt like the arrow was coming, but nevertheless, I got down on my knees and confessed him as my Lord and Savior. L- listen, can I just tell you a story? of My life, I'm, I'm, I don't even know how old I am. Um, I think, wait, hold on. I'm not in seminary, so I'm a college basketball player. And I'm taking this red shirt year. And red shirt year, you know what that means. I played two years. I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to work out. I'm going I'm to pump iron. And in that red shirt year, I took an evangelism course at, the, at our church, Grace Community Church. And um, I met this girl there, this righteous fox there. It's my wife now. And uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I was like a trainer in it. I had been through six months. So then they said, Scott, can you. Can you lead at least a small group within this house group? And, and it was an evangelism. And so what we did at our church is we took all the visitor cards, okay, of people who said, I'm visiting Grace Community Church, and then they went to the deacons, and from the deacons, they went out to this group called Discipleship Evangelism. I'm in one of those groups. I'm in a house of one of those groups, and I'm in a small group. And I met Patty there, and I helped disciple her a little bit more on extra time, you know. I just wanted to make sure she had her verses right. So, so uh, we would take these, and you know, I just tell you, there are people who just walk in, hundreds of visitors probably every week, and we'd call them and say, we're going to come by. We just want to sit with you and talk with you. I don't even know if you could quite do that today. Uh, for you evangelists out there, don't take that the wrong way. Um, I, we still do some of that. We do door-to-door at our church, but, but we were following up our visitors. So we go into this home, And we go into the home of, uh, I can still remember it. I can still remember her name. Her name was Pam Smith. We walked into her apartment. I'm probably uh, 20 at this time, 21. And so we memorized a a plan of salvation. Uh, It was pretty cool. Like, you, you know, here's the verses. Here's the character of God. Here's sin. Here's the need, Christ. Here's faith. Here's repentance. And so you train the people in your group, and you go into these homes. And so we're talking to Pam Smith. She visited and as I'm talking to her on the gospel, I could see tears welling up in her eyes. And I thought, oh, Scott. And it's probably the first time I had been out with Patty. Maybe it was the first time as a leader. I thought, I have grossly offended this woman. And so not only are there tears in her eyes, she starts to sob. And I'm, I'm like... I mean, they never not train me on this one. She just, there's two or three of us in her home. Just, she's sobbing. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. Um, I was looking at my wife and she, she, well, she was my girlfriend. No, she was just my friend at that time. <laughs> and so she's sobbing. And I said, Pam, are, are you okay? She said, Scott, how come nobody's ever told me this? She goes, I my sin I'm a sinner. What must I do? And then I thought, uh, I don't know. I mean, I thought the plan, (laughs) the, the plan says, okay, here's how you come to him. And here's what I learned. The word of God is so powerful. It surprised me. It brought her under conviction, the Holy Spirit, using the word of God out of a mouthpiece. I'm not preaching. I'm just sharing with her And I have to say, I walked out and I think, wow, the word really is powerful, you know. And she, we got down on our knees. I I, I think that was the right thing to do. I got down on my knees and she prayed to receive Christ. But I'm telling you, what I saw is the conviction that the word of God brought through the spirit of God to reduce this lady to sin, her own self-righteousness and judgment. And then I can still remember it like yesterday. We get off our knees, there's tears of joy, and <laughs> she said, oh, Scott, Patty, and I forgot who else was with us, but it didn't matter who else was on the team. <laughs> so I, I would tell Patty sometimes, hey, um, I'm going to come over and go the, over those verses with you, you know, so, um, so that God used that in our life, we were both serving the Lord. But she got off her knees and she said, what, what else do I have to do? She's so transformed. I said, and and what she's giving me is, she's Catholic. What else do I have to do? And I just said, I listened, and I said, absolutely nothing. God miraculously saved you. And then she starts crying again. But there's got to be something I do for my Savior. And I think she was genuinely saved. It probably came out of her right heart. And then I just told her, oh no, God just saved you. And he saved you as a gift by his grace and you're, you're a believer. And then she started to cry again. Oh Pam, I'm so sorry. She was so stunned by the grace of God. I wonder if we forget how powerful the word of God is. And the reason I'm telling you this account, he gave it to the apostles last night. But listen, he's giving you the word and the Holy Spirit is the one who has to do this. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Man is dead in his trespasses and what? Sins. So the best, can I tell you one final story? I'm, I'm like stuff always happens to me. Okay? But I'm like seven years old and I'm living in this place called Canoga Park and I'm trying to illustrate dead in trespasses and sins. And I'm seven years old and I live in this little tiny neighborhood. Maybe it'd be like here and I mean, it's just a little tiny neighborhood, and I'm growing up in Canoga Park. And I told you, I'm just completely pagan. My whole family's pagan, and uh, and this this fire truck just comes right down my street, super loud. Then the paramedic truck whoa 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 comes flying down the street, right? And you're you're seven or eight, and you're kind of like, what the what the heck? What is this? And then two other uh, a cop car came, and then a fire truck, a second fire truck. And so I come out of my house and I look down. Two houses down is the fire truck, is the paramedic, is the other fire truck, is a policeman. Just two houses down. An older couple lives there. And I notice there's a bunch of people outside. I don't know, probably 30 or 40. So I run down there. And you know, when you're a kid, I'm not gonna stop with the crowd. I mean, you're a kid. I'm you know, I'm just I'm like, I just run right by him. I went right into the door. I just run right into the house. That's and and on the on the ground what's this man? And just to tell you, I mean, I can tell you now, he's just dead. He, he's dead. He must have had a massive heart attack. He's an older man. And the, the firemen, the paramedics had those, do they still use those like those paddles? You know, and they're just, I'm like, wow, I thought that was a TV show. They really use those things. And it was really sad. The, his wife, now widow, is crying and they're doing everything they can. And it was the saddest thing. She's leaning over him. I think his name was Paul. Just hitting him on the chest. Paul, come back. Come back. And the, the guy's just gone. I, they were doing everything he can. And I never forgot that image. And I thought, it always remained in my mind. That's who we are apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Right? Convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God has got to sovereignly breathe life into you. But one of the means that He uses, amen, is the power of the Word of God. So listen, you depend on Him. And then just take your Bible and open it to people. Share it with people. uh, Walk with them on it with people. And I promise you... It's going to do its work. Amen? So let's pray together. Maybe just as you bow your head, maybe there's somebody that the Lord's laid on your heart and beyond just saying God's sovereign, He is. What are you going to do, though? He said to the "The Holy Spirit's going to bear witness about me, but you'll also bear witness about me. Now that could be directly there in John 16 to the apostles, but you know, this one isn't in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you, speaking to the church there, shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. Listen, maybe the Lord's laying somebody on your heart. Maybe it's your son, maybe it's your daughter, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's someone you work with. Listen, you find a way, pray. Ask God in his convicting work, the Holy Spirit, to do that. He does that. He does that even when we're by ourselves, apart from somebody. But in other passages, he says it's the word of God that brings regeneration. So listen, how does he want to use you? Listen, we're here on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let me just say that he convicts, he exposes, he cuts to the quick, sin, righteousness, and judgment. You pastors, commit your life to preaching this. Those of you who are faithful in the things of the Lord, listen, just open the book. Open the book and let it do its work. You'll be surprised how powerful it is. If there's any here this morning, listen, I warn you, flee from the judgment to come. You may think you're comfortable You may be like me. You may be like me when I was 14. I didn't want to submit to Christ. And praise be to God that the Word of God convicted me. I pray that it does so in you. But you only have one hope, and your only hope is to flee to Christ by faith to have the righteousness given to you that was only bound up in the perfect life of Christ. I beg you. I plead with you. I urge you come to Christ. You will experience not only the forgiveness of sin, but a right standing with God. You will be t- declared righteous. You will be justified in His sight. You will be given the Holy Spirit as a down payment that secures your eternal salvation forever and ever and ever and ever. Listen, we do, our, this life is short. So if you've not come to Christ, well, then I, I command you to repent and to believe, even though those are gifts of God. Jesus preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent of your sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for these sweet people. Thank you for their hearing of the word of God. We've went a little over. Bless our time. Bless our fellowship. Thank you for the person, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that it's not up to me, it's not up to gimmicks. It's not up to some kind of show. It's not up to some kind of uh, to pull the hymnals out, change the music, don't talk about sin, don't talk about hell. In fact, Father, we do talk about those things because how else will somebody's sin be exposed? How will someone's self-righteousness be exposed? How will someone's false judgment even on the fact that they think there will not be judgment. But Jesus said, the ruler of this world has already been judged. He's already dealt a death blow to Satan. So God, would you just feed us, encourage our hearts, cause us to trust you. And then, Father, if anything, we just need to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we give thanks. And all God's children said, amen, amen.